Uh, so let's get this going. I, I appreciate you guys all, uh, and gals, all showing up. Uh, my name is Nick Molnar. I am a web developer who lives in Austin, Texas. And today we're going to be talking about progressive web apps and how to get up and running with them. How many people were in Michael's session in this room an hour ago? OK, great. Awesome. Thank you all for returning. Um, and then last thing I'll say about myself is I tweet at NickMD23. I'd love to have conversations with you uh, at the stage afterwards and beyond on Twitter. Um, so before we actually dive into progressive web apps and what they are, I want to take a step back and talk about what does this word app even mean. And so I'm going to compare a little bit about the history of apps and where we've been on two different scales. That is richness, how rich and interactive the experience was for the user, and reach, how many people that experience could get to. So in um, the early days of computing, we had uh, experiences that didn't have any reach. Only one person could really be using it. And it wasn't very rich of an experience either. And those are kind of like CLI tools, text-based tools. And then somewhere in the early 90s, we got richer applications. We moved to GUIs that started using things like a desktop metaphor or a folder metaphor. Still really only used by a single person at a time, but it was a much better graphical experience. Uh, in the mid to late 90s, we kind of took a step back on the richness, but we got much better reach when we had the web, or web 1.0, right? And, and we had mosaic, and that gave us images and text, and that's really all we got. Not that rich, uh, no drag and drop. We lost a lot of the metaphors that we had, but a lot of people can use it. And so over time, the web got better. And we got to a point where we were at like web 2.0 and you know, the, the mid-2000s, and we had things like Flash, and we had really rich experiences with video and audio and drag and drop, right? Basically, the web caught back up to the capabilities of the desktop. And things were good. This is when I made a lot of money. Uh, and then in 2008, everything kind of changed because my favorite company, not actually my favorite company, I'm not a huge fan of these guys, but they released this device. They came out with iPhones. And we took a step back because now to get this great experience, this natural user interface where things like touch started to become a reality, and now we're even to the point where we're talking about like voice commands and gestures. Um, that's really great, but you have to use some proprietary SDK that you can only ship to this kind of device. And so if you want to get reach again, now we're in a world where we have to build a iOS app, and we have to build an Android app, and we have to build a Windows phone app, but nobody in their right mind would do that. Um, I work for Microsoft. Um, so don't tell them I said that. Um, and so we're kind of stuck in this rut still to this day. And the question is, how can we get that bubble to move back up, get better reach, so we can write an app that runs everywhere and reaches our entire audience? And so that's really the space that we're going to be exploring today is what is going to come and fill this, this bubble. And my hope and uh, the reason for this talk is that progressive web apps is going to be the thing that addresses that. So you might be saying, okay, progressive web apps. So this is an app built in web technology. That's great. Haven't we already done this? We've, we've done this a lot of times before, right? There was Adobe Air, which lets you use Flash and HTML and CSS to build desktop apps. And then there was the Palm Web OS, and there was Apache Cordova that let you build mobile apps. And my own company, Microsoft, made WinJS. Win and there's Electron that's pretty popular right now. There was actually sessions at this conference about Electron. And the W3C even had a specification called widgets that never really took off. But all of these app models, while they tried to emulate the web and try to, to mobilize web developers to use web technology, they missed the core fundamental benefit of the web, which is its deployment model. Right? The web is always fresh. Every time you go to a page, you get the newest experience, you get the newest data, and all of these kind of threw out that mechanism and they followed too closely with desktop. So, if that was going too far the wrong direction, let's talk about what it would mean to be a progressive web app. What do we need to be to be progressive web and not just some desktop app that's using web technology? Well, there's kind of nine tenets that have been laid out. And the first one is we should be responsive, meaning that our app should work on whatever device it is that's accessing it. A little tiny phone, a medium-sized tablet, my desktop computer, maybe even my television. Very excited. Yes, thank you. I'll, I'll be here the whole session. You can just keep on cheering for me. Um, so next is, is Hip Hip Array, by the way? So you just like totally threw me off there. Um, 
So next is that they should work offline. We have all of these experiences where we don't actually have a network connection. I'll tell you about one in a moment. That happened to me personally. They should be app-like. That experience of richness, of richness that we talked about has uh, given our users certain expectations. And often as web developers, we don't live up to those expectations. It's not terribly difficult to live up to them. We just have a history of not necessarily trying. And so in progressive web apps, we're kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, we want to try to do better, right? We want to have animation, and we want to have these experiences that people expect in apps. Uh, we already talked about Fresh. That's the deployment model. We need to have safe applications. And so everything that I'm going to show you today will not work unless you're running in a secure context, which is W3 speak, W3C speak for has to be over HTTPS. Uh, there's an exclusion for local hosts, so you can still develop without a certificate, but you have to run all, all of the te te technologies we're going to look at today over HTTPS. It should be discoverable, which is easy because the web is inherently discoverable. There's lots of search engines crawling our content and making that available. Those search engines work way better than the App Store search engines, for example, uh, so people can find your content a lot easier. Not only that, but you can throw a QR code on the side of a bus and somebody can take a picture of it and find your application, or URLs are pervasive. There's a lot of ways to share and discover apps on the web. Uh, they should be re-engageable. This is something that has traditionally not been possible with the web. That means that without me going back into your app, you as the app developer have some way of engaging with me and saying, hey, did you know that this thing happened? Do you want to go check it out? And so typically, we see this done with push notifications. It should be installable. So I have it right there on my home screen, just a thumbs reach away at any time I want to get to it, not open my browser, open a new tab, type in the URL that I happen to remember, hit go. We want to get there quickly. And then lastly, it should be linkable because links are the superpower of the web. The fact that I can take some URL and share it with you and you can catch up to me and be on the same experience is really the thing that differentiates the web as a platform from any other app platform in history. So there's a lot of stuff that we could be covering. But in this session, I'm going to focus on the three pieces of technology that I think are probably the most core and the ones that uh, you'll be most interested in uh, from what I've heard with other developers I've talked with, which is how to make our apps work offline, how to make them installable, and how to make it so that they are re-engageable. So basically, when we talk about a progressive web app, all a progressive web app is is a web app that has taken all the right vitamins. Progressive web app in and of itself is not even a technology. It's an umbrella term that's given to a set of technologies that when used to, together make a better experience. And this has happened a lot over the history of the web. There'll be some technology that's out that nobody is really utilizing until somebody puts a cute, pithy name on it, and then all of a sudden it blows up. So XML HTTP request was around for about two or three years before Jesse James Garrett started calling the technique he used with that uh, object Ajax, and that completely shifted the way that we did web development. Um, media queries were possible for a long time, but nobody was really thinking about respons responsive web design until Ethan Marcotte called it that. And that's just kind of the way that people build applications now. And so I think progressive web apps is the name that's going to bring together this set of technologies. Um, and they've just taken the right vitamins. So let's go ahead and get in. Enough for the, uh, the intro material. So we want to build apps that work offline. Now. Um, I don't drink alcohol, and I don't drink hot beverages, because hot is the temperature of the devil. So that's like the best joke I got, guys. So we're going to have to punch this up a little bit. Um, and so what I do is I go and I hang out with my buddies at these bars, and they all bust out their iPhone apps, and they're like, oh, I'm drinking this cool pills, and they're like, ah, I'm drinking that cool IPA, and they're keeping track of all the beers that they drink. And I say, you know what? I'm going to keep track of all the cool sodas that I drink. Um, and so I built an app called sodapopped.com, which is hanging out over here in Chrome, which is basically allows me to keep track of all the different craft sodas that I'm drinking as I, as I go. And so it's a simple little app. I'm going to press F12 to open up the dev tools. We're going to kind of shrink it down into a little mobile view. You can see that it's responsive. I can, I can, go, I can go and look at a bunch of different soda brands. So you see I have you know, all these different brands. Like, let's go to Abida. These guys come out of Louisiana. I can see their drinks. I can click on one of their drinks. Like They make this banana foster soda. I can go and I can rate it. I can add pictures of it. Really simple little social app for me to keep track of, now, of, of what I drink. Now, I was really excited because literally one year ago in June was the Homer Soda Festival in Homer, Illinois. The biggest soda festival in the United States. They were pouring 2,000 different flavors. 
And so I don't live in Illinois, but I went to Illinois to go to the soda festival. And I brought a bunch of friends, and I was going to debut soda pops at Homer Soda Festival. Super excited. I actually stayed up all night the night before getting it ready. They were going to be my beta testers. Now, I want to point out something about Homer, Illinois. Here's Homer. It's effectively one intersection. And all around it, as far as you can see on the map, are farm fields. So when I got out at the Homer Soda Festival to start tracking my sodas, my experience was the same as this. I go to sodapops.com, and there's no internet connection. Zero! The entire town. No Wi-Fi, no cell. And so I basically spent the, last, the next three hours playing this game. Oh, I suck again. And so this is a very real and personal story for me because I was like, dang it. I was relying on the web. The web is ubiquitous, but networking is not. And as, as a fat, dumb American, I just tend to think that everybody has high-speed internet. And, and even my own friends and Homer do not. And there's a lot of situations where your users are without internet. When you travel on trains or planes, like the nine-hour ride I took to get over here, no internet. When you're in crowds, I've been to 28 of the 30 professional baseball stadiums in the United States, because I'm a huge baseball fan. Not one of them have Wi-Fi, and none of the cell service works there when there's 35,000 fans all trying to get on the same network. Uh, inside, when I lived in New York City on the 35th floor, it would sometimes take 10 minutes to go up and down the elevator, which is very awkward when you don't have your phone to keep you company because there's no service there. And then maybe the worst offender of all is Li-Fi, which is Wi-Fi that looks something like this. It says that it's there, but it's not really there. It's just lying to you. And we see this a lot at hotels and conferences and things like that. Um, so offline is a thing. It happens all the time. So how are we going to solve this problem? Well, this is where service workers come in, and this is a new technology that fits under that progressive web app banner. So let's talk about the way things work typically on the web, right? So we have the client on, on the left and the server on the right, and so typically what happens when you have a connection, you make a request to the server, the server does some processing, and it returns a response back to the client. That's the web. That was soda popped and how it was architected to work the day that I showed up in Homer, Illinois. Now, if we don't have a connection, every request we try to make just dies and fails somewhere. This is what was happening at home. So what a service worker does is it comes in and it brings in this new concept. So if you've used a shared worker before, a service worker is very similar. It's, it's a little different. It runs in a separate process. It's separate from the rendering process than the tab that your user is using. And effectively, it is a JavaScript-based client-side proxy, which means that any network request that's going to be made first goes through your service worker, which you can use to synthesize or create a response and send it back without ever leaving the device or going to the network. This gives us the power to make things that work offline. Now, of course, if you are online and you have a service worker, you can make the decision from your service worker to still go to the server to get the latest content possible bring that back, cache it in the service worker, and then serve it. So the next time the user needs that content, it's available. So let's go ahead and take a look at what it would mean to build one of these, because as much as I like this dinosaur game, it's not really the experience I want for my users. So to start, excuse me, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to open up site.js. This is a file that is included on every single page within, within SodaPot. And I'm going to go ahead and add in these couple of lines of code. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be defensive, and I'm going to check to see if the service worker is supported by the browser that my user is running in. If it's not, I won't even try to register a service worker, but then they'll just kind of be back to the standard web that exists as it did a year ago in Homer. So they won't get this better experience, but no harm, no foul. If it is, we're going to go ahead and call the serviceworker.register method, and we're going to pass in a path to another JavaScript file, the serviceworker.js we'll get in a moment. And uh, if, if something goes wrong, I'm just going to go ahead and, and log out the error. That's all we have to do to create a service worker. So I am going to start a watcher. So as I change these JavaScript files, they're going to be uh, compiled in real time. 
let me get that watch going. Let me make a change to it so the watch gets picked up. Cool. So let me go ahead and go back online now. I'm going to run my page. I'm going to come over here to this new tab that you might not have seen before in the Chrome DevTools It's called Application. I'm going to click on Service Workers. Now, what you'll notice that just appeared here is that I have now activated and installed the Service Worker. All that means is that this separate JavaScript file was downloaded, and it is now running in another process, and I can communicate with it. If I look in the console, you'll see this service worker installed at 336.02. You didn't see me write that console log. That's because it's inside of my service worker. So if I go and I open up this worker, we can see the code here. Oop, that might not be a good thing. There we go. That's, that's why that was logged, because my service worker, the file that I pointed to, has an install event, and when it gets installed, I can do something. And in this case, I'm just logging out um, the time that it was installed. Let's go ahead and take a look at that code in Visual Studio, my editor. Uh, and so it's very simple. This is it. Let's go ahead and do something a little bit more interesting. So a very common pattern with service workers is to pre-cache static assets, assets that aren't going to change ever or at least not very often. And so I'm going to go ahead and uncomment this code. We have a lot of ground to cover guys today, so I'm so, and girls. I, I just say guys. It's, I'm a bad person. Um, we're going to, uh, I'm just going to kind of uncomment some code and show it to you because we have a lot to cover today. I wanted to save your brains from watching me type. And so uh, what we have here is the event that gets passed into install has a method called wait until on it, which is our way of telling the browser, hey, I got some work to do on this installer. When I'm done installing, I'll return a promise that resolves. So you just wait until that promise resolves. And so uh, then I'm going to take and open up a cache object. This is a new API that's part of the service worker specification. This is not the standard HTTP or browser cache that you know and love that's controlled with headers. This is an additional cache on top of that one. So you can leverage both uh, if you'd like to, which is really great for progressing from a standard web app that already has caching to this uh, this cache that's that you can control programmatically. And so open will either open the existing one or create one, and I'm just calling it static. The name is, doesn't really matter. Uh, it uses promises, as all of the APIs that we're going to look at today are promise-based because they're all relatively new APIs. And we're going to say, so after I've opened up that cache, go ahead and add all of these assets to the cache. So these are all just static files. I've got images in here. I've got fonts in here. I've got CSS and JavaScript. I will point out that you'll see this special syntax that I have here. This is not part of the spec. These little curly braces are part of my build script because I minify and I crunch my files down and I put a fingerprint on them to make sure every time they change, they get a unique name. Uh, and so these things will turn into real URLs, but this gives you the gist. So when I do that, let me go ahead and save this. My service worker should get built by my watcher. Great. Let me go ahead and go back. Now, check out this number right here, 4889. That's the version of my service worker I have installed right now. And by default, service workers won't always update. They'll, they'll update once a day by default. I'm going to check this box in the dev tools to make it so every reload, it checks to see if there's an update to my service worker, which is very handy when you're doing development and changing it. And so I have upgraded to 4890. That's the new version of the worker because I just made a change. Now, all of those files are actually going to get cached in this special cache storage database that you can look at from DevTools. But in this version of Chrome, there's a bug. So I actually have to close DevTools by pressing F12, open it again, and now you'll see I actually have the ability to open up the cache storage. And here's all the assets that are cached. So when you go to play around with this, like every six weeks there's a new version of Chrome, there'll be a different bug for you to work your way around, but they'll probably fix this one. Um, and so, great, now all of those assets are cached and they're local, which means I can serve them even when I'm offline. Let's go ahead and take a look at how I would serve those offline. So the service worker exposes an event named fetch. And any time the browser goes to access the network, if you've registered for this event, the event will fire and you know that a fetch is about to happen. So here's what I'm going to do with my fetch. Once again, I tell it, hey, event, go ahead and respond with this. I'm going to give you a promise that will resolve, and that's what I want you to respond back to the rendering thread with. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to check my cache, all of my caches, which would include this uh, static cache that we initialized up here. I'm going to check all of my caches to see 
if there's a request in here that matches the one that's happening right now on this event. This event's request, is that already in the cache? Then, if it is, if I have a response from that cache, return it. Great, I just pulled the thing out of the cache programmatically and sent it on. Now, if I don't have a response, I'm then going to check to see, is the user offline? So that's what this navigator.online tells you. Now, the, the, the spec writers have named this the wrong thing. This should be called navigator.offline, because they can't ever tell you if you really are online because of situations like Li-Fi, but they do know if you're 100% offline when you have no service. So I'm, I'm doing the inverse here. I'm checking to see if you're offline, because I know for sure you're not online. Uh, and in that case, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to return a page that I specially created that's called my offline page. It's my offline experience. And if, they're, if we do think that they might be online, then this last return will just go ahead. And let's just keep doing the fetch that we were going to do originally. Right? So originally you were going to request this file. I've stopped. I'm checking some things. I'm checking my cache. I might return some, something different to you. If I don't have anything that I can do, just go ahead and access the network. If the network fails, it will just fail like normal. Uh, so once I've done that, I can come and let's go ahead and make sure we have the new version of the service worker because I just made changes. There we go, 4891. Now I should be able to go offline. And if I go to some other page in my experience, instead of getting the dinosaur game, I now get this very scared dinosaur because he's about to go extinct. Well, we shouldn't be seeing him very, very much anymore. Uh, and so this is my, my experience. It's now branded. And of course, I'm doing a very simple thing here because we only have 50 minutes on stage. Uh, but you could do something much more complex. Uh, actually, in the real version of this app, I cache the list of brands. And so I went to the brands page. You would see the full list of brands. And if you had visited one in the past, it's actually in color lit up. And you can click on it and still go and explore that brand. If you had never looked at that soda brand before, it would just be grayed out and you couldn't click on it anymore. But you would know that that brand exists in the database. So that is the basics of Service Worker and getting a service worker up and running to support an offline scenario. So the second of the three technologies I mentioned that we were going to cover was the ability to do installation. And we're going to do that using a new-ish specification called the Web App Manifest. Web App Manifests are very simple. They kind of work like CSS, where you'll put a, uh, a link tag in the head of your HTML, and you'll point to a JSON file. Uh, and so this is literally all you need to do to put a manifest, manifest on your page. I, I'm using um, ASP.NET NVC, and so I stick this in my layout file so that it's available on all of my pages. But the backend technology really doesn't matter. Actually, everything that we're talking about today is completely agnostic of backend technology. It doesn't matter if you're a .NET developer or a Ruby developer or a PHP developer. It doesn't matter. And same with front-end technology. I don't care if you're doing React or Angular or Polymer or Umbular or whatever the new thing of the day is. Uh, this all works on top of that. So that manifest JSON file looks something like this. It's just a JSON file. Now I'm calling out probably the, the top 10 or so important properties for you to know about. There are additional properties, and I'll give you pointers to find out um, how you access those. But these are all properties that, will, that whatever you set them to will be visible to your end user. Uh, so I think that these ones really count. Uh, so the first couple of properties we'll, we'll talk about establish the identity of your application, and that's name and short name. And so they appear in the add to home screen experience that we're going to look at in a moment. So there's the name, it's soda popped, and uh, there's also an, an app install banner, which we'll talk about in a moment, where the name appears. Now, if you provide a short name that's different, it will be the name that appears under the icon, where you only have a few letters. Uh, the next set of properties are properties about the way your app is presented to the user. And so the first property is the start URL. This is if the user has installed your web app to their home screen and they click the icon, what is going to be the first thing that they see? And so in this case, I'm going to take them to the root of my web app, and so that will be the first screen that loads. I could pick any URL that I want to, and it's very popular for people to put a query string parameter on there to track and tell their analytics system this is actually coming from an installed progressive web app, because it's just a URL that's going to get hit. Next, there's a couple of different colors. There's a background color and a theme color. The background color will automatically populate your splash screen. So this uh, kind of sky blue color is my background color. And uh, when the app first opens up, this background experience will automatically be provided to the user. 
And then there's also a theme color, which is what should the Chrome around your app look like? I don't say Chrome as in Google Chrome the browser, I just mean the operating system environment in which your app is running, right? the title bar. Uh, it's a little hard to see in this case because my theme color and my web page's background color are the same dark blue. Here, I'll change my theme color to red, and so now you can see I have a red title bar and a dark blue page. There's also an orientation property where you can say whether or not your app should start in a landscape mode or a portrait mode. Uh, which will look something like this. Notice the placement of the Android button, some of these screenshots at the bottom. There is a display property which says how appy is your experience. So standalone means I am my own thing. All the screenshots I've been showing you so far have been standalone mode. I get my own Chrome around me. I'm going to show up in the task switcher by myself. I'm not really part of the browser at all. You could do a full screen mode which would look something like this where you get rid of like the back button and stuff like that in the browser, but you would still have very minimal uh, browser UI. And so that, here's the, the full screen experience where I'm literally taking over the entire device. And then as, uh, lastly, you can de uh, define an array of icons that are going to get used in various different places. So this add to home screen, um, banner and pop up, and it all, we also saw that same icon show up in the uh, splash screen experience. You can define different sizes at different resolutions and things like that to support retina displays and whatnot. So let's go ahead and take a look at my actual manifest file. Uh, so this is it. I mean, we, we just saw most of it in, in um, PowerPoint. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get myself back online. And I'm going to show you a fairly new tool in the DevTools called Manifest. Now, this is actually going and reading that manifest file that I just showed you, and, and is displaying back to me what Chrome understands to see from the manifest. So the name, the short name, the start URL. Honestly, I don't find this particular tool to be that useful, because it's just showing me what my text editor was showing me. But I do know now that at least I input everything correctly, and Chrome is, is parsing it properly. Uh, there is this add to home screen link, though, which is very interesting, uh, and to show that off, what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch over to this Android emulator. And I want to go ahead and I'm going to load my local URL. So let's copy this. Oh, you know what? Copy and paste doesn't work here. So I'll just type it in. We're going to open up Chrome on Android, create a new browser tab, and go localhost colon 55194. Go. Hmm. Site can't be reached. Okay, that's because port 55194 on this Android device doesn't mean anything. And I need a way to get from this Android device to my web server that's running on my laptop here. And so the easiest way to do that is to open up a tab at Chrome colon whack whack inspect and click on the port forwarding button. And you want to go ahead and enable port forwarding. And so I'm just going to say, you know what, anything inside of that device that's at 8080, I want to redirect all that port traffic to 55194. And so if I do that, now I can come back in my Android emulator. As long as this Chrome Inspect tab is running, it doesn't have to be in the foreground, but it has to be running. You see this yellow banner that tells me it's running. When I do that now, 8080 gets tunneled out to 55194, and I'm looking at my local box through an emulator. Now, the emulator, I think, is really important because it gives me a much better feel for how this thing is really going to work on a mobile device. If you happen to have Android, it's a great experience to just plug in via USB, and you can be actually be on your device. I don't have an Android device with me, though. So the next thing I want to show you about this is once you have that emulator running, and by the way, you can download this emulator for free at uh, developer.android.com studio. Um, once you have that up and running, the next thing you're going to want to do is get Chrome DevTools attached to this so we can use all the tools we've been talking about. So I'm going to come back to this Chrome Inspect, and you'll see that it has detected that I'm running this Android SDK and the Android emulator. And here's my tab at port 8080. So I'm going to hit Inspect. Chrome DevTools opens up in a new window, and it's actually pointing at this tab. I can prove it. I'm going to come in here to Elements. I'm going to start browsing around here, and you can see that what I'm doing in Chrome DevTools would actually be affecting my browser. So back to the point at hand, this add to home screen button, when I click it, it creates the app install banner. Now there's two ways to install progressive web apps. There's this way, which is probably the preferred way. So this will pop up for the user, they hit add to home screen, 
Okay, so to pop was added to my home screen. If I go to my home screen, there it is. I have my beautiful icon. I look just like a first-class citizen. I can go ahead and open up the app. Here's my splash screen that we talked about coming from the app manifest. It's gonna take a moment to load my, um, my first page, which I don't know why it's not happening faster. I probably have something going on with Visual Studio. Well, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll open up the task switcher and you can see in the background, here's Soda Popped, the web app running in the browser. But here's the progressive web app actually running as its own thing. We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, and so that add to home screen shows me what that install banner would look like. Now, there's another way that users can do that. They can come in here and say add to home screen and they get a slightly different experience. This is a pull model. They know that this thing is a progressive web app and they want to add it to their home screen. A lot of users don't do this because we've had this experience for a long time and it's very similar to bookmarking. So that banner that pops up is the exact same experience as if you went to Washington Post or the register and they have a native app, it would pop up and say, hey, do you want to install our native app? The exact same experience. But you as the developer do not get to show that prompt to the user. Instead, the browser vendors choose when to show that prompt to the, to, the, to the browser. And there's a whole set of heuristics around it. Like They have to come to your app multiple times and your app has to be doing good things because they don't want to push a progressive web app experience on a user if your app isn't really that great. So they don't actually provide you a way to do that. So you can simulate it by hitting add to home screen. Now, when would they actually do this naturally? Well, there's a couple of different requirements for you to get an install banner to appear on your site for your user. First of all, you have to be running on HTTPS. It has to be secure with a green lock icon, which means not only is your page HTTPS, but all the assets on it are HTTPS, 100% secure through and through. You have to have a registered service worker. You have to have an offline experience, which means that your start URL has to work even if there is no uh, connection. That's how they test that. And then you also have to have an app manifest with at least the following five properties, a name, a short name, an icon that's at least 144 by 144 pixels, a start URL, and the display property has to be either set to standalone or full screen. Now, it's a little bit of a bear to keep all of this in mind, and I will tell you that over time, these heuristics have changed, um, and they will continue to change and adopt to kind of feel uh, the balance between developer needs and, and user needs. And so the best thing that you can do is go take a look at Lighthouse. So Lighthouse is available at this URL. Don't worry about writing down the URLs. I have uh, one URL at the end that contains all of the notes and all of the, the URLs and downloads that you'll need. But this is a tool that ships as a Chrome extension. It also ships as an NPM module, so you can run it in your continuous integration builds. But effectively, I can come over to my page, and I'm going to close DevTools. I'm going to open up Lighthouse that I've already previously installed, and I will generate a report. Now, this is going to make my screen do a whole bunch of dancing. This is an extension that is testing my app to make sure it follows the tenets of what a good progressive app are. And when it is done, it will generate and give me back a report. And so you can see, it, it does a bunch of other testing. It, it, it tests my app for performance and for accessibility and some other general best practices. All we care about for today's conversation is this progressive web app section. I'm green, I'm 82% out of 100. I can see, hmm, uh, I would have a better score if I was redirecting HTTP traffic to HTTPS. I actually am, in fact, doing that on production, just not locally, because I'm using HTTP locally. And um, it says here that my, my start URL is not cached by a service worker, which is why my start screen might have been having early, uh, problems earlier in the, um, in the emulator. Now, there's nine other tests that it did that I passed, and we can look through each one of them, and if we want to know more information about it, I can, I can open it, and there's a description and a link to learn more. And then it also tells me, here's some things that you have to manually check right now, but just go ahead and manually check these things, and uh, you'll know that you have a good progressive web app. If you're getting 100% on this, or even a good score, like I have an 82, and I do get uh, the install banner to appear. So a couple other points about Lighthouse. So first of all, it's built by Google, who do a lot of auditing tools. This is just the, the newest auditing tool that they have. It is open source, and I already mentioned that there's a Chrome extension and an NPM module. Well, see you later. <laughs> you waved. That was awesome. <laughs> you guys are all going to hate me. Uh, <laughs>
Uh, too late. Uh, that laugh was too late. So uh, next uh, technology that we're going to look at, the last of the three, is going to be uh, how we can make our web apps re-engageable. Now, this is going to be the most code-heavy and complicated section, but I'll, I'll do my best to walk you through it. So before we jump into uh, the code, I'm going to take a step back and we're going to do a high-level overview of how web push works. And there's really three different phases in the life cycle of a push notification. So that first phase is we have to configure push. And so it starts by a standard web response. We respond to our user. They have a page. We ask our user for a subscription key. Their device will go and talk to one of these key servers, which are run by the browser vendors. Right? So Google has one for Chrome, and Microsoft has one for Edge, and Opera has one for Opera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those servers return the subscription key to the device, and the device sends it to my server, where I need to persist it somewhere, so I stick it in a database. Now that I have that in the database, I am ready to start pushing content to my user. But then I have to send a message. Now, all of these protocols, because there are multiple different vendors implementing the same service, there's not like one universal service that we go to, um, the encryption is a little tricky because we don't want any random person to be able to sniff what we're pushing to our users. And so we have to encrypt the message we want to send ourselves. We don't rely on something like HTTPS because as soon as it goes through those intermediaries, they could get right around that. Uh, and so we will encrypt that message, and I'll show you how to do that. It's, it's not complicated to do. There's libraries that help you. And we send them over to the vendor's servers. The vendor server will do some processing, and it will send the notification to the, the user's device. Now, you would think that sounds like the end of things. It's not. Instead, what happens at that point is we receive the message on the device programmatically via an event in JavaScript, and then we have to raise the notification so that they see the little toast up here. And so let's go ahead and walk through exactly how we do that. Uh, in SodaPopt, the way that I subscribe to notifications is first I have to log in. I'm going to log in here with Facebook real quick. Great, here's my profile page. And I'm going to say I want to turn on push notifications. I do that by just clicking this button. It's a toggle button, so I click it. Now they're turned on, and you can see I have the option to turn it off. I click it again, and they turn off. And so now I'm no longer subscribed. To do that and make that button work, We're going to look at profile.js. Now, profile.js is the file, the JavaScript file that is served only on the profile page. The only place that I have this button is where this file is served. And so when that button is clicked, uh, I have this event listener. And I, I'm going to walk you through a couple of things that I'm doing. So first of all, I get access to my service worker. And that service worker has a property on it called the push manager. And I ask that push manager for the existing subscription. Go ahead and get me the subscription. Now, it might return null. And in that case, that means the user hasn't subscribed up to this point. Uh, but if it doesn't return null, that means that they have a subscription. I now have access to that subscription. And because I have a toggle button, what I'm going to do is if I get a subscription back, I now need to turn it off. So I will call unsubscribe on that subscription. And this one call right here automatically goes and tells Google or Microsoft or whoever, cancel that subscription. We're no longer just going to send push notifications to this device for this app. So now Google and Microsoft know about it, or, who, or whoever that fetches with, whatever the, the browser vendor is. But my app doesn't. So I also just send a request to my app and say, hey, delete that entry from the database. We're not, we're not dealing with that anymore. Um, and then I have some error handling code, and I update the button. Right? I, ch I change the icon, I, I change the state from disabled or not disabled. So that was all if they were already subscribed, and that's how you unsubscribe. It's not actually that complicated to unsubscribe. To subscribe, I tell the push manager, I call the subscribe thing. I know it because I got null back when I asked for the subscription. I know they don't have one, so we're going to create one. So I get to say, okay, go ahead and subscribe. There's some funkiness in the spec right now, and you have to say user visible only equals true. You can't set it to false or it won't work. You have to set it to true. And this is basically the spec writer's way of telling you as a developer, you're using this feature to send push notifications, and you're going to show a notification when you do a push. They don't want you 
pushing data down to, to the user without notifying the user that that just happened, which is fine. Here's where things start to get a little bit more complicated. We have to pass in an application server key that has been URL base 64 to uint8 array encoded. And I did not write this code. I literally go and copy it from Google. Everybody goes and copies this exact same snippet from the spec. I think that they should just build it into the API, but they haven't yet. I think that will change eventually. So um, I have a link to this implementation that you can copy and paste. The thing that we pass into it is a public key. Now we haven't talked about keys before, but I mentioned encryption. So here's where the key comes in that is important for encryption. So to generate that key, what, what I would recommend that you do is go check out this web push libs repo on GitHub, which has the canonical implementation of the web push specification for every different language that people are doing major web development in Python, Java, JavaScript, C, C Sharp. Uh, there's a PHP in here. And so I'm using the one that's linked to from here, which is called web push on the .NET backend. And uh, I've NuGet installed uh, web push already. And I'm going to show you how you generate the key. It's very simple. It's this, these couple lines of code. I actually just ran this code one time. I said, hey, generate me some keys. It gives me a public key and a private key. And I've, I've just stashed those away in configuration. I never really run that again. Actually, in fact, it's almost so dumb to do that that there are now web pages out there where you can just say, hey, I want some keys. And you can just sit here and refresh them all day until like, hmm, I don't like the one that starts with BM. Yeah, BA, that's where it's at. And so I could just copy that. And now I have my public and private key. But Effectively, public key is what gets passed in right here. And so you can see I'm setting public key uh, using that same double bracket notation I mentioned earlier. My build system will take that key that was copied and drop it in here. So I'll have this long, ugly thing. I don't want to put my private key in my JavaScript file because then it's not private anymore. You've shipped it to your user. So private key stays out of JavaScript. It's only on the server side. So. I go ahead and I ask for a subscription with that public key and with user visible only equals true. Then uh, I'm actually just doing some logging here for our sake. Then after the logging finishes, I once again, I update my server because I finished, oops, I'm sorry guys, didn't mean to scroll there. Because I finished this line of code here, I've already got uh, uh, Google and Microsoft and the vendor already knows about the subscription, but I'm telling my server about the subscription here. And so I just go and I save it in the database and then I update the button. Everybody with me? That was a lot of code to look through, a lot of things happening. It's probably a little bit more complicated because I have a toggle button, but I wanted to show you how to unsubscribe because it's pretty important to let your users do that. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look. I'm gonna open up DevTools. Look at a console. I want to show you what one of these subscriptions looks like. So when I subscribe, that logging statement that I mentioned that I had uh, dumps out this JSON. There's three properties on it, basically. There's an endpoint, which is this ugly URL. We need to store that because we're actually going to send data to that URL. That's the URL that Google returned. And then there's also some keys. There's some encryption keys that get sent back that I'm going to need to use to encrypt a message for this user. And it's called P256DH and auth. I don't know what these things mean. I'm not a cryptography guy. I just know that I need to save these three pieces of data. These three pieces of data are what I've sent to my server and is what is stored in my database. So I'm now ready to send a notification to my user. And in SodaPops, anytime a drink is added to the database or a drink is edited, so Coca-Cola chocolate comes out, I go and add it into the database. If you subscribe for push notifications, you'll be told, Coca-Cola chocolate is out. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Survey so says? No. <laughs> I agree. That does sound pretty horrible. Um, so to do that, I am in my admin controller. This is the admin panel for Soda Pops. And uh, there's a bunch of boilerplate that doesn't matter. This is the method that matters here. I notify my users. This gets called anytime there's an add or edit on a drink. So. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to create three settings. First is a subject matter. This is how can Google contact me if something is going wrong with my push notifications? And I'm saying that they can mail me at that email address. What is my public and private key? Those are the same ones that I generated here. And I'm using this Vapid details. This comes from that library that I told you I knew get installed. So the next thing I do is I go to my database and I get all of the push subscriptions from all of my users. 
And then I actually go and get some information about the new drink. So this is going to return to me information about Coca-Cola chocolate. And then I'm going to go ahead and create the object that I want to send down to the user. So I'm just serializing some JSON data about Coca-Cola chocolate. I'm saying its name and who the manufacturer is and things like that. And then I new up this web push client that comes from that library. Then all I need to do is loop over all of the different subscriptions that I have, all of the users have, who have already subscribed. When I create each one of those subscriptions, I need to transpose it from my data model that's in my database into the data model that the web push library supports. So I basically pass those three values that we looked at into this thing. And then I simply say, go ahead and send a notification to this subscription here that, we, that we're looping over to this payload that I created once with these details that I created once up here with my keys. That's it. Push notifications all get sent out. If there's an error with me sending something to Google, I'll get a web push exception back and I can handle that exception somehow. People want to see this working? Yeah. That sounded like Coca-Cola chocolate might actually sell. Um, so let's go ahead and we're going to take a look. Oh. No, we're through phases one and two. There's three phases. That gets the message to the browser, but we haven't actually shown how we're going to show the toast. Let me show you one more thing here. There's just one more thing. Back in my service worker, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to turn on push. To do that, all I have to do is subscribe to an event called push. And when the push event comes in, it will have a data object on it which is the JSON file that I created, or the JSON uh, payload that I created. It is the Coca-Cola chocolate information. Now I'm getting it on the other side. This is the client consuming the push notification. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a notification object. That is the toast that will appear. Uh, and so that thing has a body and an icon and a badge. It has a whole bunch of different options. It has actions, which are the buttons that should appear. And so if you want to play around with what all the different options are, there's this cool website called the notification generator. And so you can come in here and you see there's all the different properties that you can set and you can just set them on the web interface and hit display notification and boom, I got this little toast that popped up and that cat icon is there because I'm using this cat icon listed there and let's, let's go ahead and, and customize this. So let me do a custom title, hi dev sum and I'm gonna go ahead and add an image of a cat photo in. Let's close this notification. Oh, you know what, I'm gonna add two buttons two actions, and if you click on them, I'm going to go ahead and display an alert. Display the notification, and there you go. Hi, DevSum. The cat photo's in there. Here's my two buttons. If I click on like, I get the alert because that was the action. All right, so this is just a quick little tool to see what are some of the things that you're able to do with uh, different browsers. What's really cool is like if you come here to these vibrations, uh, my laptop doesn't support vibrations, but an Android phone does. And so I came in here and I put in like the Super Mario. Actually, no, I did Smooth Criminal because I'm not going to lie. I'm, a, I'm an MJ fan. I did Smooth Criminal. And so like when the notification appeared, like, dun, dun, dun. no, that was Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> uh, my, my, my hand started to vibrate to that beat. That was the best joke, me screwing up. You guys are mean. I guess that's part of the course. Okay, so we have two minutes left. Let's go ahead and finish this off. So I now have the push and I'm accepting it. And then right here, I'm showing the notification. I'm going to go ahead and do the next step right here because we're short on time. I'm going to add in a notification click event. This is the event that will be fired when somebody clicks on the toast. And I am told what part of the toast they clicked on, which is in this event.action, and so I'm switching on it. So I have a button called later, and if they click on later, I'm going to run some logic to um, add this drink to their wish list. This is something that they want to drink later. Um, and if they click on view, I'm going to do an action that's going to open up a new window to take them to that page for the new soda. Okay, let's save this. I should be good to go on my watcher. We'll go back to the app. We are at 48.94. Let's refresh, 48.98. I'm going to go ahead and turn on push notifications. They're on. So now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to open up localhost. I'm going to go to the admin portal. Here's the admin section of Soda Popped. Let's put this over here. The actual app on the left. 
It looks like they're off. No, they're on. I clicked that button to turn it off. I'm a great designer. Okay. <laughs> so um, I'm not going to add a soda because it's just more typing, but I'll just go ahead and edit one. So um, Abida from Louisiana makes a banana fosters soda, and we'll just pretend that we edited it. When I hit submit, it should tell me that there's, I should get a notification saying that there's a new banana fosters soda. Submit. Boom. Banana Foster Soda from Abida. I can see it or I can pop it later. And if I click the see it button, we'll go down that switch case, opens up the new window and takes me right to the Banana Foster Soda page. And the crowd goes wild! So this works in Android as well. It works every all the browsers that we've talked about that are supported. I haven't mentioned support a whole lot, but let's go ahead and take a quick look. So Web Push API, supported in Chrome, Firefox, and Opera today in development for Edge. There's a proprietary API to do the same thing in Safari iOS. We talked about the Web App Manifest, supported in Chrome and Opera right now, Firefox and Edge are implementing at the moment. There's proprietary mechanisms to do the same thing in iOS. Service Worker, Chrome, Firefox, Opera, being worked on in Edge right now. Mm, there's another crappier standard called AppCache to do something similar in iOS. iOS is a bit of a theme. But as Michael talked about, and for those of you who might have missed it, this is progressive web, right? So we start with a web experience. Your iOS users will get the same great experience that they already get, but people who have more capable browsers or as Apple updates the browser, then they can get this full-on experience. If you enjoyed this, well, uh, wait, where are we at? Sorry. So all of that to say, I think the future is looking promising for progressive web apps. And I, and new specs are coming out every day. Actually, there's probably about 20 of them that I could have done in a session on by themselves. Things to tie into credit card payments on your phone. Things to tie into authentication on your phone with like a, the fingerprint reader. All of the experiences that you have available in native apps are coming to progressive web apps. And so if you enjoyed this course, I would recommend going and checking out one of my two Pluralsight courses. I have one that's specifically dedicated to Service Worker. I have another one that is about everything else that we've talked about today, including more like how to do background syncs and going into some more of the details. That's a great six hours worth of content if you have a fun little Saturday. Um, I appreciate you guys coming out. We are out of time, so I'll take questions over here if you have some, or here's my Twitter handle. Go ahead and tweet me. Uh, you can find my blog at nickcoach.com. The Pluralsight courses are available. Don't forget to do your evals. Five just happens to be my favorite number. Uh, you guys were great. I was awesome. Thank you.